What is up, folks? Welcome back to the channel. My name is Justin Kana. This is Ask JK January. I ask questions in the community tab. You folks upvote and we get into the questions. Raj Patel had a question that didn't get any upvotes, but most of the subscribers from the channel lately are probably, I know they're coming, from the This Place Called French Laundry video. And so to kind of give some love to those folks and give some love to Raj, I want to talk about three restaurants that come to mind. And this was really hard to narrow down. And so if you folks like these stories or you like the way that I dig into these meals, you can ask this again in a future Ask JK and I'll get into more because there's plenty. Uh, so the first one is Echubari, which is a restaurant in Spain. And that stands out because it was a restaurant that I traveled to by myself. You have to go to San Sebastian, and I took a bus. I, like, walked to a bus station, uh, took two, two buses, and went down, like, this long, winding road, got all the way to the end, and the bus driver actually had to, like, cuss, <laughs> go off the normal route because I was the only one left on the bus to take me there. I wasn't shooting videos at the time, but I uh, was heading back to the U.S. after uh, working in Europe for a while. And it was one of those meals that just reminds you that there's still more to learn. That, And also simultaneously, that all of the fancy, flashy techniques that you may know how to do or, or might have seen can't compete with simplicity. And maybe can't compete's the wrong word. It's that you don't always need them. That there's beauty in simplicity. That's what a lot of people talk about with their meals at Echibari. And to experience it was really, really phenomenal. The second one is a restaurant called Jimbocho Den. And this is from a chef named Zayu Hasegawa. And he was in Tokyo. I went to his old space. And I just remember being in there and next to me, to the, it's, it's a counter, and to my left was a chef from Hong Kong and his like supermodel girlfriend. And then to my right was like this really old uh, couple, I, I, and I want to say they were from Scandinavia. And I just remember being sitting there at the counter and asking the chef questions about, I think, a mackerel dish. And it was the first coming from these very polished kitchens. I just remember he brought out a whole fish and like put it on the counter and unwrapped it because they age it for a couple days. And that the the ability to just talk one on one with guests was something that I found immense inspiration in. It's one of the reasons I like talking to the to the camera so much now. And then the other piece was like, he had such a sense of humor with his food. And that was also something that I, that I just, he has a dish where it was served in a custom made cup. It was like a mug. And the story was that he got a Michelin star and then lost it. And so on the side of the cup, he puts a custom logo of his face made in the style of the Starbucks logo. And the name of the dish was like, star comes back den it was like a play on stars coming back and he also has the dish of the den tucky fried chicken where he puts like if you're a vip guest he puts your face on the side of the box and just the way that he was able to serve food in an elevated way while still having a sense of humor that honestly started me thinking about dish of the day as a concept because i like funny inside jokes and memes and stuff like that and i was like huh you can actually have that with food no one had shown me that before and so that was really really fascinating 
And then the last one is a little bit of a sentimental, emotional one. And that was, I know I'm just coming off of talking about French Laundry for, for ages and ages, but when I went to Per Se after having my externship there and I got to go with my dad, who was, you know, Asian parent, has a lot of doubt about his firstborn son going to be a professional chef. And like, I wasn't making money at the time. And I was just having to like apologize to him and say like, you know, I'm going to these nice restaurants because I know it's going to pay off in the long run. And just to have him experience a, a place like per se, and like he talks about that meal to this day. And it was kind of like it solidified. He was like, oh, I understand. Like, this makes sense to me because, you know, he grew up poor in India. And then coming here, he really like made a way for our family and to be able to like show him that this is what I was trying to push for and, and what I was interested in. And to have him simultaneously like show an interest in what I liked was also like really, really special. And it's somewhere in the stack of papers as I'm like unpacking my office. Like when we got there, Thomas Keller like hand wrote a letter to me and it was like on my like nap when I went to go sit down, it, it is like an unparalleled uh, restaurant experience. And so that always is going to stick out in my mind because of how special it was. Next question comes from Aiden Kellogg. Advice on getting a stage in another European country. And this is the same process I suggest for anyone, right? Spend the time to make your list and send out the contextual emails, the ones that have the one-liner or the two-liner small paragraph that just shows that you're genuinely interested in what that restaurant is about. You're not spamming things out to people. And then just kind of see what ends up coming in because it's a game at that at that point once you do that it's it's basically a game of how long is the stage for do you need a visa are you hoping to get a job offer at the end of the whole thing and that becomes a more complicated uh, answer that I would need to give but all those other kind of like logistical questions come after you initially kind of either get those yeses or the noes and being okay with getting rejected question from horse crazies 18 how is LGBTQ representation in kitchens and how are they treated this one's tricky because no blanket statement is going to give a satisfying answer, right? I don't think there's a single restaurant that I've ever worked in, and I really had to rack my brain in this, where there wasn't at least one member of the LGBTQ community working in that restaurant. And I'm talking about restaurants I've spent time with. I'm not trying to uh, uh, think back to all the places I only spent a day or a week in, but, but I'm not going to, and I'm also not going to name certain names, right? Because I don't want to get into people's private lives. But Culinary school, yes. Per se, Grace, French Laundry, the little butcher shop I worked at in Napa, Lisvaka, all those places, both in the front of house and in the kitchen, all are resounding yes. I can distinctly remember people. In, in, in Now, what was it 50-50? No, there was definitely they they were the LGBTQ people were definitely the minority. But again, in the hope of attempting some nuance here, I also always worked in cities. So am I getting a skewed set of data here? Right? Like, I really disliked the intolerance that existed in the tiny little Midwestern town that I grew up in. And so I wanted to get the hell out of, of that little tiny place and go to a city. And so again, maybe I'm getting a little bit of a skewed perspective here. And to the question about treatment, this also isn't one that I can satisfyingly answer, right? Like I could say everyone's treated with kindness for me, but that doesn't mean that every single person behaves like me, right? Is there some vendetta that restaurants have to gatekeep jobs from members of the LGBTQ community? 
I think it's actually one of the best industries that accepts people of all different backgrounds and orientations. But this industry is practically all I know. After leaving restaurants, I kind of started working for myself, and so I don't have a lot to compare to. And so what would be better in this situation is for me to hashtag ask you folks. And so please leave your experiences down below, because I think the more voices we can get into a conversation like this, the better. Question from David Ward, and I am, I took notes. I am being smarter so that my answers can be more condensed in the I'm taking notes, and so if you see me looking off, it's because I have notes here. So David asks, I'm from Alaska, where the fine dining season is incredibly limited to almost none. I have a backyard and some of the seasonally most beautiful fish, game, and vegetation in the world. Besides taking advantage of the limited seasonality, how do you recommend incorporating the practice of fine dining when fresh ingredients are limited to eight months out of the year? New subscriber, absolutely loving the videos. Thanks, David. It's great to have you watching. The first question might be, is eight months not long enough? Because I think there's incredible value of having almost 75% of your year dedicated into digging in and developing your technique and coming up with new ideas and testing new dishes. And then maybe you have some sort of like a Favikin approach to taking your focus away from food for, let's say, three months to write or to create content or to brew beer, something like completely not related. And then you only end up cooking when it makes sense, right? Now, I don't know if you run your own business or the, if this is something where like you do this on the side and you have some something else going on like it might not be financially responsible for you to take three to four months off uh, a year but can you supplement it with other things if you're not excited about cooking in those off months and the other piece of advice that I've given to coaching clients before is to use that off time to travel if you can and again this is a financial question right and because if you can travel and get inspired by something that's not Alaska, when you come back, you have a head that's kind of like already spinning with ideas because it sounds like your love of your place is there, but you're missing some like pushing outside of your comfort zone aspects, right? Juan Cruz Martinez asks, what are the skills you would recommend a beginner to focus on? Okay, here's where I get to make the pitch because my cohort-based course called the Demi Skills course is starting at the beginning of February. And I take you through five modules of every single skill that I wish someone would have taught me when I was a beginner right? And the first module gets sent a week before the course starts. And then from there, there's four sessions once a week where I teach live. And yes, we record them so you can watch them on your own time if you're not available on the days when the sessions are happening. And the reason that we do it as a cohort is that so you're taking it with other students. So it's not something where there's some stupid statistic that self-paced courses where they just give you all the content at the beginning, it has like a 95% drop-off rate. So the goal here is that you're taking it with other students and they're hoping that you show up at the same time as they are because you guys want to do exercises together. So every single live session has a breakout room portion of it, I have an exercise where you're really forced to use the skills that I taught in that session. And to accompany this launch, I'm really excited about this. We have a five-day kitchen productivity challenge that's going along with this. And so it's over 40 minutes of content that's directly taken from the course. I'm not like dumbing it down or making it like watered down or, or less impactful. Like, oh, only pay if you want to get these real skills. No, these are the real skills. And it's all done to make sure that you like my style of teaching. You like what the Demi Skills ethos is. Is about and it's sent for free to your inbox over the course of five days. There's almost a hundred of you taking the challenge right now, which is kind of mind-blowing. Again, you can sign up anytime and you know I apologize if this is the beginning of Justin, all you do is talk about the course, 
But we did the math. There's over 200 slides that we've created. There's over seven hours of content that I deliver with this course. And there's so basically there's there's no one single answer I can give you where it's like, yep, all you need to do is understand the double duration first pass and then you're good to go. There's not one skill that's going to do it for you. Right. It's so much more than that. And and I don't make stupid promises to replace culinary school or you're guaranteed to become a sous chef in four months kind of thing. What I do is I try to take lessons that took me four to six years to learn and I distill them down into like, what's the essence of this? What's the real skill? How can this become structured so that I can teach it? Not just my unique experience that like I needed to get hammered this into me enough times before I finally understood it, make it teachable and then do it in a way where it builds upon itself. And the other cool benefit that I love about this format is that once you enroll, you're a student for life. So every single cohort that we run, we spend time between cohorts refining the content, upgrading things, taking things out, doing one-on-one -on -one calls with students to get feedback. And so if you're in a place where you took the course once or anybody who took the beta can take this first cohort, if you're about to move halfway across the world to a new restaurant and you want to get a refresher on the Demi skills, Go ahead and take it again because we're trying to do like three cohorts of this, three to four cohorts cohorts a year, and that would be a really good place where regardless of where you're at, you can take this again, not something where it's you just take it once and then it's kind of like you leave it on the shelf and it's like, oh yeah, that was kind of nice. I watched that, but I never get to engage in this again. So of course, the link is in the description for both the five-day kitchen productivity challenge and for the course. There's options now with group coaching too, which I'm really, really excited about. Anyways, I would love to see you folks in cohort number one. Rusty Obra, what is your opinion of obtaining any level of ACF certification? We all know about the CMC exam, but when you have the certif certified culinarian or certified sous chef also available, did you also ever come across another cook or coworker that has this? So Rusty, no one upvoted this question, but I know that you comment and engage with stuff all the time. And so I wanted to show you some love on this question. It's similar to any other certification in my mind. It needs the triangle the three the, of, of supply and demand. What do I mean by that? You have one side of the triangle is the consumers or the customers, and they need to be able to see those three letters on the about page of your website or at the bottom of your menu, and they need to understand what that means. Then another side is you've got the institutions or the companies that might put the hurdles in place where maybe you need one of these certifications to get a job opportunity. And then the last one is the bottom or the third side, that's who the certification is marketed to, aka us chefs. And if there's a large demand for people who have that, and there's a low supply, supply and demand, then you get someone with that certification, they can probably get paid more or compete less for the same opportunities, right? Because the demand is high, the supply is low. But if this becomes something where just anybody can get it in like a day or in a weekend, then the supply goes up of people who have this certification and then it becomes watered down, right? And then of course the demand could go down because customers and institutions don't really see the difference of someone who has the certification versus someone who doesn't. And then you definitely see the interest go down. And so all three sides need to have buy-in or 
some sort of skin in the game and understanding. So it might be an education problem. And then you also need to have like a real market, free market sort of like dynamic where there's supply and demand for the certification. If that makes sense. All right, Lauren, I think I wrote the longest amount of notes for your question. And the, the question is looking for some advice to calling board in a restaurant. I have no problem being loud when I say behind or corner, but when I call board, I freeze up. I think it's a confidence thing. I know my chef can do it way better. So why would the cooks want to hear me on board? I'm a chef de partie. I'm fine doing a lunch service, like 100 covers, but dinner stresses me out, 100 to 400 covers. And I get stressed when I can't do grill board by myself, when it's so busy that I just need to call board and have a sous chef or head chef on grill. It's way more stressful because they're right there listening and judging me. It's worse knowing that all the cooks are listening to me and judging me. Lauren, this is dope, first of all, and thank you for being so vulnerable and asking this question because I, hands down, would not have had the courage to ask a question like this publicly the first time that I had to call board. So calling board or expediting, depending on what, what how your restaurant calls it, is the act of taking orders and or tickets and being almost like the conductor of the orchestra. So you have the tickets and you're like, okay, order in four tasting menu. You guys are working two langoustine, three custard, one is no onion. You're out on four halibut and we're picking up six quail right now. That's calling board. Students who are part of the beta for the Demi Skills course are excited because we do a whole exercise in the course where I teach the other side of this, where I teach how to mark your board. So if the expediter is calling things, how do you keep track of things in your station, which is one of my favorite sections of the course. And so I'm going to shamelessly plug that. But you're talking about confidence, and confidence on expediting comes from being a pace setter. Everyone looks to you to be the source of truth to keep things moving at a manageable speed, and you're absolutely right. I often share the quote that confidence is a side effect of preparation. I'm going to say that again. Confidence is a side effect of preparation. And so if you don't feel prepared to expedite a 310 cover night, you're not going to pick up any confidence. So that's hopefully a little bit of, you know, comfort in dispelling the myth that like, of course, you're going to be confident. You might not be confident because you don't you don't have the preparation yet. And so I've got two pieces of advice. One is really disappointing and one might help. And so let's get the disappointing one out of the way. The disappointing advice is you're going to ladder up in dinner service confidence right? It's not going to all of a sudden happen overnight. There's nothing I can say or a tip or a tactic that's going to get you there, right? You're going to crush 220 covers and then you're going to do 265 and that's going to feel really shitty, but you're going to do it. And then you're going to have a day where you have to do 290 and then 315 and then 370 and then 400. It's the slow progressive overload where you inch past your comfort zone and over time you won't freeze up anymore because you've just had repeat exposure. And what's going to happen is you're going to acknowledge the patterns that happen because those happen because anything between 220 and 290 probably feels the same. But the second that you crack 300, something needs to change, right? So what I would used to do is I used to have my pastry team help the garmage chefs plate up the first course of the tasting menu because any day that we had more than 100 covers, if that didn't happen, we were going to get bottlenecked because that first push from Garmage was eventually going to hit the hotline. And if I didn't control that, they were going to get fucked. And so to prevent that, I would make sure that the pastry team helped the Garmage station so that we could more like drip feed the first courses out into the dining room. Does that make sense? So the second piece of advice I'll share, and you can let me know if this helps or not, because I don't know how your tickets are structured at the restaurant. I just hope you're using your pen in an effective way. What do I mean by that? When a dish gets sent, cross it out. 
when you've told the line that they're out on specific dishes, so you've given them a heads up that they're about to pick up six quail, or you're out on four halibut, you guys might use different language, do a dot, right? Do a dot next to those dishes, and then when you pick up something, so it's like pick up four halibut, right? Like you have not told them that they need to prepare for it, fire it, circle it. So between that system, crosses, dots, and circles, you can take a look, you can take a step back, you can look at your ticket line, and you can go chronologically left to right and use that visual cue of what are we picked up on right now? What have I told people about? And what did we just send? Because then, and and what, what also helps sometimes, and depending on how many tickets you're rolling through, this sometimes doesn't work, is to do a dot dot and then a, um, the time, right? So right now the time is 28, it's 528. So I put 28 next to the halibut dish that just got sent out. And if it's been 21 minutes since we sent that halibut, I need to turn around. I need to ask front of house, hey, what's going on with table 14? Because it's been 21 minutes since we sent their halibut. And from there, you have this visual cue. You're, remember, you're the pace setter. And so you need to group things intelligently. And that's the, if if this was a, just a case of reading what's on the ticket, this would have been automated already. Where us humans come in is that we need to be able to identify where the kitchen's at capacity-wise, where the pace of the table is, and then be able to make decisions based off of all of those data streams. And the ultimate goal is to not overwhelm the line. And so pump the brakes if a two-top is four courses in already, and you think they can realistically wait an extra four minutes, and then you can catch them up with a four-top so that you can pick up six main courses at the same time. Does that make sense? That's where your job comes in. And then last, of course, to your point, you need to be loud and confident. It's not necessarily about being uh, too charismatic or making jokes or talking down to anyone, they're looking to you as a source of truth. And so that's what you need to be for them. And you'll find your own voice in doing that. Question from Calypso Man. Hey, Justin, I'm at my first serious position in a fine dining restaurant, and I've been put on the boring salad section. What resources or skills can I use to become the king of the larder? The Demi Skills. I, I literally made the Demi Skills course for folks like you, people in high caliber kitchens who feel stuck, who want to progress, but they don't necessarily feel like there's a structured way to get there. And I'm sorry to be so blunt, but it's honestly what I wish I would have learned when I was stuck in the boring cheese section of the French Laundry. That That's the avatar that I had in mind when I was writing this course. And so it's literally something I made for folks like you, and I would love to have you be a part of a cohort or even a part of the challenge. Shamel Saeed asks, specific to my own situation, what can you recommend to students in culinary school, especially CIA, as you're an alumni, what should we do during the program to get them the better chances at landing externships at prestigious restaurants, Michelin stars or three stars, three stars, New York times type of places. I have some decent connections in New York and I'm definitely wanting to network more at CIA. I just started my first semester and I want to start off in the right way. This one's hard, right? Because when I was at CIA, I, they were very opposed to any of us students going to high caliber kitchens because it burned people out. They didn't usually pay well, or if at all. And it really made it difficult to go back to the super structured school environment if you spent time at any of these kitchens. And so I share the story that I was so stupid and went for Le Bernardin as my first stage. It was a three Michelin in Midtown Manhattan restaurant. It's like an institution. And I wasn't even done with skills one yet. 
and for people that don't know, is like you do you would do a bunch of book stuff. You do skill skills one, skills two, skills three, and then you would start to go into your first like cuisines block. And so I was way too early to be trying to go for a three Michelin star place, but I did it. And it's because I would send six to eight emails a week just to build up that muscle of interviewing with big names, right? Because I wanted to ultimately do my externship at a place like that. And so the last thing you want to do is make your first reach out to a high caliber place a month before you need an externship confirmation, because that's not good. Because what if they say no? What if the timing's wrong? What if you don't, they don't email you back right away? And the other thing that helped me a lot was when I would send emails, I slowly got smart to the fact that if I would ask for externship opportunities, even if it felt like it was early, it was more likely that I, that I would get a yes, because chances are they'll ask you to come stage anyways for the externship. And you always have the option to say no if you don't like the place because you're no more than like a year, year, like a year out, like nine months out from your externship. And so it feels early, but like you're, you need to do that research. And this way you also get used to sitting down with sous chefs and chef de cuisines and executive chefs after the stage to discuss what the externship looks like with them. What do they have a typical externship track? Do they have externs currently at the restaurant? What does compensation look like? Who are you going to be working with? And ultimately, it'll just build your confidence in the whole experience over time. That helped me a lot. Question from Sin Harvest. When did you realize it was your time to do your own thing? What advice can you give for those looking to take that leap of faith? So one day specifically stands out for me. I was running the pass at the restaurant in Norway, and Chef Chris, the owner, he rolled in from the airport. Service was about to start. Like We were like 45 minutes out from the first guests coming into the restaurant, and he asked me to give him an update on how everything was going, how the week was going. And I told him how the team was doing. I talked about some new dishes that we added to the menu that week, whatever. And then he, I said, how was the trip? How are you? And he just looked at me and he said, I'm running a 20 million kroner a year business and I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. Come to find out he was just coming off of some like big negotiation business meeting trip with some investors. And that's really all he could kind of share with me at the time. But that really stuck with me, right? Like here's my boss, the guy that I look to to teach me things. And I had just come off of like seven years of school and learning and face planting and focusing and pushing. And I was like, wait, you don't have it figured out yet? Damn, like this shit never ends. Like that's what went through my brain. And that was really the genesis of me thinking about gaining other skills myself, about taking courses, about creating content, and really not being scared of starting something. Because the truth is, there's no place called ready. You'll always, always convince yourself that I'll do it when. Whether you have extra savings, whether you get an email from someone who's giving you permission to do something, or whatever. And if you aren't careful, you can repeat the I'll do it when line to yourself every single year, and you'll look up and 10 years have gone by, and nothing has changed. And so here's another line that helps me when I start to get in my own head about this stuff. If you're proud of your first version, you shipped too late. What does that mean? Get a version one out there, host a pop-up, launch a beta, do it for free, and then get feedback from those f f from that ugly baby, right, where, where friends or family or even those first initial customers, if you're being really brave, give you those hard-hitting, I didn't really like this, this is a three-star review thing, because then you can iterate. Now you actually have something to base these play uh, questions off of. 
you have data. It's not just something where you're kind of like ruminating in your head. And the benefit of this too is that when it's low stakes, like you're doing it for friends or you're doing it for free or you're calling it a beta, is that you can do it as a side hustle to start. You don't have to take the leap of faith until you have a version one or a version two, at least. Does that make sense? Question from Jeremy Peria. Have you ever dealt with burnout, whether working in a specific restaurant or from the industry in general? This was far and above the most popular question. Are you folks trying to tell me something about feeling burnt out? Jeez, take some time for yourself this week. If you need some time, please. Okay, let's get into it. Talking about burnout. The first time this happened, and I brought this up briefly with another question earlier in this video, it was after about a year and a half of working at the French Laundry. I got really burnt out working at tasting menu places. I, I didn't want to move down to San Francisco. There was nothing attractive about just changing restaurants that was going to solve the problem for me. And so what I did was I told myself that I needed three things. The first one was a 40-hour work week. I wanted a semi-normal work schedule. The second thing was I wanted a less perfect work environment. I wanted something where there wasn't such a strict standard. I, I latched on to high standards for so long, and I wanted to be able to like let my hair down. Is the right is the wrong is the wrong word because I think I was still buzzing my head at the time. But I think you folks can resonate with that who who are potentially either on one side of that coin or another. And then the last one was like I wanted to talk to people. So much of my day at the French Laundry was like head down, quiet calling back orders or just communicating that I would need something kind of at the end of the night. I wouldn't talk to anybody. And that was really crushing. That was really demotivating. I wanted to talk to people. And the way that that ended up happening was I found a butcher shop called The Fatted Calf in Napa. And I applied and they hired me and I worked behind the butcher counter there. And that f fucks with people because people think that, oh, you worked at a butcher shop, you were butchering. I was not in the kitchen breaking down ducks or stuffing sausages. I would literally talk to customers and slice charcuterie on the machine. And I got a real lunch break every day. I, I An eight-hour day basically felt like a half day. And I really loved my coworkers. I liked working there. I worked there for like four months. And that was basically all the break that I needed to get geared up to move to Norway. And that paradoxically started almost three years of going back into tasting menu life, back into 13-hour days. And the lesson there was just being really clear in what I wanted. And the most important piece being, oh, it, like coming to terms with that, it's okay to admit that something about your current situation you don't like. And that's hard to wrap your head around because oftentimes you worked really hard to get where you're at. You probably have a lot of sunk cost. You've made a lot of sacrifices. And to admit that there's something that's irking you that you're not happy with that's half the battle. And so getting there really, really helped me. And the second thing that really helps me now with not feeling burnout is to create real finish lines. And this is super top of mind because I heard this on a podcast this week, believe it or not. It's that burnout often isn't from working long hours or from working really hard or from being in a high stress environment, right? That can actually be really motivating. It's half the reason so many of you send me DMs saying that you want to get into a high caliber place is because you want that. It can be incredibly fulfilling being in a place like that where everybody's aligned and you're firing on all cylinders and you know you're doing something at a really high level. That's not what often causes burnout. It's the lack of a finish line. It's from when we look and we're like, I have no idea where this is going to end. When will this stop? That causes burnout. Creators that feel like they have to upload every single week on YouTube forever. 
chefs that feel like they have to keep their Michelin star for the rest of their lives. And a lot of us right now probably feeling like, when in the world is this pandemic going to be over? That's what causes burnout. And so I hope that helps because burnout is not fun. Oftentimes it's one of those like night is darkest just before the dawn scenarios and moments in time because when you get to the other side, when burnout has kind of subsided or you've been re-inspired or reinvigorated by something, it's like, oh, duh, of course I felt like that because there was no finish line in sight. And, you know, you get yourself out of the washing machine and you can kind of see inside versus just getting sloshed around. And so I hope that helps for all of you that also upvoted that comment, uh, not just uh, Jeremy. Thanks for being with me for this Ask Jay episode. Leave a like if you enjoy Q&A videos just like this. Uh, shout out to you if you're listening to this audio only on the Emulsion podcast. That's my podcast where I talk to chefs and farmers and knife makers and food critics all about what it means to progress your career. That does have its own separate YouTube channel if you want to go ahead and subscribe there. Otherwise, I'll look forward to speaking with you in the next video. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.